Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Spencer Durant of Spencer Durant Outdoors. Spencer shares his love of the outdoors, and we talk about fly fishing, guiding, riding, and everything in between. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's sponsored by our friends at Norvice. Their motto is, tie better flies faster, and they produce the only vice that truly spins. On October 16th, the folks at Norvice will be unveiling a new product at Tuck Fly Shop's Demo Day. The event will run from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at Tuck Fly Shop's new Waynesville location. Stop by and meet the folks from Norvice. Watch them tie up everything from size 20 midges to game changers. And of course, check out the new product release. If you can't make it, be sure to head over to www.nor-vice.com and check out all of Norvice's great products. Now, on to the interview. Well, Spencer, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Hey, Marvin. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm really looking forward to our time together this evening. And, you know, we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We always ask our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Oh, earliest fishing memory. Uh so if anybody's read anything I've written, I apologize because I've told this story multiple times. Uh, but I think I was, I can't remember if I was five or six, but I was five or six. I was one of those two. And my dad and I, uh, we hopped into his old Nissan Sentra. And I remember what he was driving because he had a, a CD that I think the only track on there was Cotton Eye Joe. Uh-huh. And I don't know if that was the only track or if that's just the one that I hit repeat on because I loved it uh, as a little kid. And I remember mom telling us that we needed to go into town to get groceries. Because uh, where we lived at the time, the closest grocery store was 15, 20 minutes away. So we hopped in the car, but we didn't go to the grocery store. Dad took me up to the river. And there's this little creek that we've been fishing uh, and by we, I mean our family, uh, we've been fishing since my family settled out here in Utah in 1847. And he took me up there and he gave me a fly rod and said, when you get it tangled or lose a fly, you're done fishing. So he sets off upstream. I set off downstream and I, I was done within like five minutes. I was hopelessly <laughs> tangled. So I bring the rod back to my dad and my dad's like, all right, well, you're just going to watch me because you can't handle your crap for more than five minutes. So you just get to watch. So I'm sitting there and he's fishing dry flies and it's dusk and there's caddis and mayflies everywhere. And I'm freaking out. So I thought the bugs were going to eat me. And my dad had to explain these were the good bugs. These weren't the bad bugs. And, and he's pulling fish just left and right on dries and, he catches one, he lets it go, and I remember I was just wearing sandals, and they, the fish just swam right over my feet to go downstream, and I couldn't believe it, and that was uh, that was my first exposure to it that I remember. Yeah, that's super neat. It was, a, it was a good time, so, and then I've been fishing that stream, fished it pretty religiously until... Uh, a big fire that was caused by incompetent forest service officials in the state of Utah. Uh, it's completely their fault. Uh, came in and burned 120, 130,000 acres and decimated half a dozen trout streams. So, uh, but I'm not bitter about that at all. So, yeah. And just for folks that, you know, kind of over here on the East coast, uh, away from you, Basically, what happens is you get just massive silt and runoff, and it just chokes the streams. Yeah, well, the fires burn so so hot and so fast that they just they burn up all that brush that holds up the soil. So then you get rain, and everything floods, and the stream channels get rerouted. I mean, the first big rainstorm we had after that fire I was talking with some of my buddies who work in the Division of Wildlife here in Utah, and 
they were netting dead fish out of the Spanish Fork River. Uh, and nobody really thinks to trout fish the Spanish Fork River. Uh, it just doesn't, it's always kind of off color. Uh, a lot of folks will catfish it or go for bass or you can get pike down by the mouth of the river where it dumps into Utah Lake. But they were netting some 30 inch brown trout that were living in there that had just died before anybody even had a chance to catch them because they just suffocated in that, uh, in that silted runoff. So, yeah, it was, it was, uh, uh, there were a lot of angry emails and phone calls from myself and a lot of other folks in the Forest Service. We, uh, there's still one road up there that it's been, shoot three maybe four years i can't even remember now probably three years and there's a road that still hasn't even been opened yet because they just haven't gotten around to clearing the flood debris off of it so yeah and so you started young with a fly rod did you stick with it or did you fish gear uh how did that kind of work oh i ended up fishing gear because i couldn't figure out the fly rod (laughs) (laughs) i'd always fish flies when i was with my dad but if I didn't go fishing with my dad, then I was fishing gear and I was a firm believer in power bait and treble hooks for a while there. And I killed my fair share of thinless spready rainbow trout fresh off the hatchery truck, uh, at all the local community ponds. And then thankfully I didn't really start fishing any of the, the wild trout, around here in the Rockies and until uh, I was either throwing jigs on a spinning rod or I was throwing flies. Yeah. And do you mostly fly fish now or are you kind of looking for the best tool for the job? No, I mostly fly fish now. I mean, if we're going out and we're just, there's some reservoirs around here that are really just good bass reservoirs and we'll go and I'll just throw gear all day just, because everybody else is throwing gear and it's hard to be the one guy that needs 10 feet of space at the bow <laughs> or the stern for his fly rod. So I don't want to be that guy. I just, you know, take a spinner rod and go for it. And, uh, I still do a lot of trolling for kokanee salmon. That's a big thing here, uh, in Utah and a couple other Western States. It, there's kokanee everywhere and trolling for them is the, it's the, it's to conventional fishing. I think what Euro nymphing has been to fly fishing. Everybody's doing it. So it's a, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. Interesting. And obviously your, your dad was an important part of your fly fishing journey. Who are some of the other folks who have mentored you and what did they teach you? Oh, my good buddy, Chad Argyle. Uh, he, he taught me the importance of presentation more than anything else. Uh, We were on a trip in the Boulder Mountains in central Utah, which is a terrible place. Don't ever go fishing there. Don't waste your time, ever. Doesn't even have fish, hardly. Uh, No. It's fantastic fishing. Uh, And we were fishing this pool in this little stream, and every cast we were getting fish to chase our, uh, I think we were just throwing like, some salmon eggs on a treble hook or something like that and fish were chasing them like nobody's business but we couldn't get the hook set or the fish would chase it and then turn away at the last minute and chad finally come down and uh took a look at our rigs and our knots were terrible we hadn't trimmed any of the line and our hooks weren't hidden or anything so he really gave us a master class in presentation that day and then we caught a whole grundle of fish and ate them all that night around campfire uh, actually on a scout trip uh, back when being in the boy scouts meant something so yeah he, chad was a big one and then oh uh, shoot my buddy hiram weaver you gotta give him a shout out too uh he's been a big help he rescued a fly rod that i threw into pyramid lake one time, so I owe him a lot just for that. <laughs> uh, that's a whole that that trip to Pyramid could be a whole podcast. Oh my gosh! Um, Alex Patterson's another guy too. But kind of what I learned from both 
Alex and Hiram as their uh, uh, their patience with the rigs that they've fished for years and years. Hiram's a uh, true believer in the dry dropper dropper system because you can fish three flies in Utah. And that's what he fishes 99% of the time. And he catches more fish than anybody else I know. So learning to dedicate myself to to something and switching my flies out before I switch up the whole rig, you know, so I'm not just uh, saying, oh, well, they don't want any of the nymphs today. I'm just going to fish two dry flies or whatever. Same with Alex. He's that way too, but he's a lot more, uh, he's a lot more malleable. He'll change based on the situation. And the guy ties, he's colorblind as a, as a freaking bat, but the guy ties some beautiful flies. So, uh, the time with him is an adventure because, uh, if he doesn't have any of his colors labeled, it's, uh, some of the stuff turns out kind of fun if he doesn't pay attention. <laughs> so, those two guys did a lot for me. Yeah, very neat. And, you know, you're a pretty prolific writer and content creator. You know, when did you get the writing bug? Oh, I don't, prolific's a strong word there, don't you think? Uh, no, I mean, nice. you create a lot of content, right? I mean, you're regularly putting out content for MidCurrent. You've got stuff on your own on your own page. you got a podcast. I mean, um, you know, uh, I know some people call themselves outdoor writers, and they might write something once every three years. Oh, I guess that's true. I just, I feel like a slacker because I don't get half the stuff done that I need to. <laughs> but no, I, uh, I started out writing in, uh, professional sports actually. Uh, but I started writing, I was always that weird kid in school who's writing fantasy stories, uh, and crap instead of doing what he should have been doing in school. Uh, so I was that guy. And then grew out of that a little bit. And me and all my buddies, there was a group of 13 or 14 of us. We all went out for the freshman basketball team. And everybody made it except me. So I was kind of up creek because uh, I wasn't going to see my friends. So I did the only logical thing, and I said, I'll, I'll write for the student paper. I'll cover the basketball team for the student newspaper. We had one at our high school. And then that ended up working out to where I was uh, doing some regional high school sports coverage for uh, the Deseret News and KSL, which are two local outlets here in Utah. And parlayed that into a job with the Utah Jazz fresh out of high school and I worked for them uh, for a year and then worked for the Associated Press and Team USA for a little bit and then uh, just slowly transitioned out of sports into outdoors writing. So, Yeah, do you remember the uh, the first piece you got published and got paid for? Oh, that's a good question. Uh I don't. <laughs> I don't. I can remember the first. I, I remember the first fishing story that I published and got paid for. That was a piece in Hatch Magazine uh, about cutthroat restoration in Utah. That was the first outdoors piece that I ever got paid for. I don't remember what my first paid piece of writing was. Uh, yeah, no, that kind of concerns me. I'm going to be thinking about that all night now, Marvin. Thanks. I didn't mean to do that to you. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that makes me feel bad because if you like wake up at three o'clock in the morning, you're like, I remember. Um, well, I'll text you. I'll, I'll text you so you're up too. How, how's yeah, that? Fair enough. <laughs> that'll be, that'll be five o'clock my time. So it'll actually work out a little bit better for me than for you. But, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, you say you're, you know, you're really busy and I know you do a lot, right? You're making rods, you're guiding, you're, you know, you're teaching middle school English, but how do you like to write? Do you just kind of like block out time or are you one of those, like, I want to write a little bit every day when it's quiet, either at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day or something like that? Oh, 
I make every writing teacher in the world faint because I just write when I feel like it. Um, which is not good. It's kind of a habit I fell into. Uh, but it, it works out. I mean, I have a few deadlines that I have to keep and, and I've been terrible at those. <laughs> so I, I haven't even really been keeping them up. I, I need to apologize publicly to Chad Schmuckler over at uh, Hatch Magazine because I've been late with every single story this year, I think, just about. Um, no, I just really... I write a lot after a fishing trip, and then I write a lot late at night. Usually after uh, after my wife goes to sleep, I'll stay up uh, writing. And thankfully, she falls asleep, stays asleep, so I could sit in bed and write. Um, I used to be really religious about sitting down at the at my desk every morning or every evening and cranking out a thousand words on whatever I was working on. But that was that was when I was putting a book together and a few other things. And, uh, I don't have that same urgency now. So I don't need to produce, you know, 80,000 words every year. Um, but I do, I do take time to, to work at it to make sure that I'm keeping my skill level up as well. And I, I, I really kind of pick away at pieces. I write a little bit here, a little bit there, and I, I go back to it. It, it takes me, I'm working on a story right now that's though I'm a week and a half into it. And, you know, it's probably going to end up being maybe 2000 words. So, you know, that's a, and I'll probably spend another two weeks on it. So that's three and a half weeks that I've spent on a 2000 word story. And when you look at what you get paid for it, that really makes you want to cry. Uh, but it's, this is part of the gig. So, yeah, no, I get it. It's interesting too. Cause when we'll talk later about kind of what's happened, um, you know, in the outdoor writing space in terms of being able to make a living doing it. But I was also curious, I always like to ask all of my writers to share some of their favorite authors and writers that they like to read and follow. Uh, so my favorite fishing writers, uh, it's going to be John Gearex going to be at the top. Uh, I've had the chance to fish with John and Bob White. We did a trip together a couple of years ago, and that was just an absolute blast. Uh, Tom Rosenbauer's obviously got to be up there. Uh, I love uh, any of Lefty Cray's uh, instructional work that was really helpful to me. Uh, and then... Uh, Michael Tagayas. He's not a traditional fishing writer, but I freaking love his writing. It is just so good. It's outdoors writing. He's just fantastic. Um, and then I'm going to butcher the pronunciation because he's Welsh, but his name's, I believe it's David Nile, N I A L L. Uh, and he wrote a book called Trout from the Hills, and it has some of the most lyrical prose that I've ever read. It is just amazing. And then uh, Jack London, Ambrose Bierce, uh, Edith Wharton are all great. Uh, and then I'm a big like sci-fi uh, thriller junkie, so Jonathan Mayberry, um, Larry Correa, uh, C.J. Box. They're all great authors. I read tons of their stuff. And uh, then since I'm a middle school English teacher, I end up reading a lot of uh, young adult stories, too, to figure out stuff for my uh, my students. So Robin Schneider has been one of my favorite authors there lately. She is uh, She's fantastic with what she puts together. Yeah, that's interesting because when you mentioned fantasy earlier in the interview, um, when I was in middle school, early high school, I read a ton of science fiction and fantasy. Um, yeah. And I've actually, um, just because life has gotten so serious lately, have gone back and started rereading it. I'm actually rereading Dune now, but uh, going back and looking at like Anne McCaffrey and Piers Anthony and um, Michael Moorcock and some of those guys and it's kind of interesting to see what uh, 
you know, I, I think Dune was published in 1965, kind of what uh, people thought the future was going to be like before I was even born. Oh, yeah. Well, when you go back and you read any uh, Isaac Asimov, and it's the same thing, some of his predictions were just way too on the nose for comfort. Yeah. Interesting so. stuff. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to swap some paperback sometime instead of flies we when we when we uh, when we meet up because I've yeah I've got a ton of them. Um, the uh, and, and so too you know you write in a lot of different media. I know you write for people. You write for yourself. Um, do you have kind of a specific style or approach or goal when you write? I think more than anything, I'm just trying to tell a tell a story and have it be. Entertaining is the wrong word, uh, and distracting is the wrong word. More like, and captivating is the wrong word too, because that's how about honest. Uh, honest, yeah, but I want something that grabs your attention. And that's why I said captivating is wrong because it, it's got a romantic undertone to it, and I'm not trying to seduce anybody. So, uh, I think. Uh, I wanted to grab your attention enough. I want to give you a story so that you forget all the crap that you're dealing with because 90% of what I write is read by people like me sitting in an office at two or in the afternoon, staring out the window and thinking, what am I doing? Wasting all my time here. I should be on the river. And they go get their, their fix, you know, whatever publication it is they turn to. And I just hope that whatever I write gives people that break they're looking for. Um, I worked in corporate settings for way too long and it was miserable. And I read so much fishing writing during that time uh, because I just sat there and uh, when you're in Utah, at least the, uh, the Salt Lake area, at, you, mountains are all you see and we all know where the trout are they're up in the mountains so it's it's kind of like being stuck in a veil but not being able to ski except for night skiing um, <laughs> you know it's still skiing you're still a veil but it sucks because you're sitting there all day watching everybody else go down the list on a bluebird day and you know I, I'd always joke that I'd be sitting there and in my office and I could hear the trout rising, uh, on the Provo river, you know, and I couldn't, but it felt that way a lot. Yeah. So I, I just try and give people that sort of escape. And then obviously, you know, if I'm doing gear reviews or instructional stories and, you know, the focus is there, but with the writing, that's not gear or instructionally focused. That's what I'm trying to accomplish with it. Yeah. And, and who are some of the folks kind of like your fishing that helped you with your writing? Oh man, this is going to be a long list. Uh, That's good. It's fine. Yeah. Chad Schmuckler has got to be a big one. Uh, Tom Rosenbauer has been kind enough. Uh, Bob White has also been kind enough to help me out. Uh, Faith Jolly, uh, one of my old editors at KSL. Uh, and Kristovich, she was an old editor at a local paper here in Utah. Um, oh, and now I'm blanking on names. This is the part I hate. Uh, <laughs> this is when I can see the first face. I can't remember their name. Uh, my good buddy, Ryan McCullough, he's been a good sounding board for writing. He's helped me a ton. Uh, and oh shoot, who else? Again, I could see the face, but I can't. I can't remember the names. Uh, but all those folks have been supremely helpful in getting me to where I'm at now. Uh, oh, I'd also have to say uh, Kirk Dieter over at uh, Trout Unlimited. Uh, he's helped out uh, as well. So. Basically, every editor I've worked with, I, I'm going to cover them all that way. Every editor I've worked with has taught me something. So <laughs> if I've written something for you at some point, you've taught me something. Uh, 
John Shuey over at American Fly Fishing Magazine. That was the other one I was trying to think of. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting too, Spencer, because you know you've kind of done old school writing, but you've also write for some online platforms. And yep. yeah, I was kind of curious to get your thoughts on, you know, how electronic and digital medium is impacting outdoor writing. Well, I mean, I don't think it's the medium as much as it is the uh, the fact that pay for everything has stayed about the same, but cost of living and inflation have skyrocketed. So I think that's been the biggest impact more than anything. But having more voices to write isn't a bad thing. Having more platforms isn't a bad thing. Um, but it is definitely, uh, people aren't willing to pay to read anymore either. Uh, that's why I admire the heck out of what the folks over at Fly Fish Journal are doing because they're putting together a very, very top-notch printed copy. Uh, I believe it's a quarterly magazine. Uh, and they're getting people to pay for it. Same with Pete Pygis over at Fly Culture. He's in, based in the UK. Uh, and he's getting people to pay for it. He's got international readership. He's getting people to pay for it. Uh so there's a few folks out there who are making it work, but I think I think that's just been the biggest stumbling block for all of us is that nobody wants to pay for it. So we're almost completely reliant on ad dollars uh, to pay writers. And because of that, we can't pay writers what they're worth anymore and you end up with I think you end up with subpar writing because unless it's going to get unless it's going to go in a great sporting journal uh, uh, trout magazine uh, American fly fishing magazine you know unless it's going to go into one of those big magazines you're not going to get paid what you should for it. And so uh, quality goes down because, you know, you want to save the really top shelf stuff for when you're writing uh, a book or when you're putting stuff on your own website, because then that content's yours forever and you're able to monetize that to your heart's content. So, and you can't do that when you're writing for other people. So personally, I don't, I hope that my writing quality doesn't differ based on how much I'm getting paid for it. But I know I've seen that. And I know that sometimes it is hard for me when, for whatever reason, I agreed to do a piece for, you know, let's say I agreed to do it for a discounted rate. It's hard to motivate myself to do it. So it, it, it takes time. So, and I, I know, I know I've turned in less than stellar writing before everybody's done it. If they say they haven't, they're lying to you. Yeah. And, and do you think that um, the shift to away from kind of subscription dollars to more ad dollars also kind of, you know, the business gets in the way of the art? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it does as much. Um, I think it can, depending on how principled you are. Uh, as an individual. So, you know, if there's brands out there who are doing things that you don't support, uh, you don't want to write for a magazine that takes their ad dollars or a website that takes their ad dollars. So I think that's something that you have to take into account. Uh, I've become that way lately, but I, I wasn't that way when I first started out, but it's important enough to me now that uh, there are, some places that I I choose not to write for anymore because certain companies advertise with them and I don't agree with the way certain companies are doing business. Yeah. I don't think it's viable long-term for the health of fly fishing or uh, the finite ecosystems that uh, we have for trout either. 
Do you think, for example, with like when you have advertisers that are getting gear reviews, do you think that's a problem or can create a problem? No, because, I mean, gear reviews are gear reviews, and they make the money. Uh, They really do. They get the eyeballs because gear is sexy and gear sells. And I write gear review stories so that I can go spend a week in the back country with biologists learning about the intimate genetics of uh, Colorado river cutthroat trout and certain strains of Colorado river cutthroat trout and how they exist in little streams. And then write a story about that, that probably half the people are going to read that story uh, as compared to the gear story, but the gear story pays for the opportunity to go do the conservation story, which is the most important stuff. Got it. And, and I know too, that kind of in a, you know, you, you also write professionally to, for kind of content creation for businesses and in prior lives uh, you've done even more kind of social media content strategy work. You know, what is your, cause I think, you know, I, it would be interesting. I guess we can talk about it more, but I mean, I always am interested to hear people that are really doing that kind of what their approach is to social media and content strategy. Well, it's to be the opposite of every person on Instagram that you hate. Uh, so don't be, uh, don't be that douchebag that's uh, telling everybody that they're fishing wrong. Um, and certainly don't be that guy who gets all riled up because somebody's got a gripping grin photo of a, a fish and they've got their hands in the trout scales because 90% of these fish that we caught aren't wild. They're stock or they're stock fish, you know, and chances are that fish is going to die after the fight anyways. That's a pretty pessimistic view to take of things, but your your keyboard warrior crusade isn't going to change the mind of that person. So you've got to set the example instead. I think what the folks over at Keep Fish Wet have been doing is fantastic because they don't sit there and comment on everybody's photos about, Oh, you need to hold that fish in the water. Get in the water. fish out of water. You killed that fish. You evil person. No, they don't do that. They just lead by example. And they put content out there that says, Hey, this is, this is how you should take pictures of trout to ensure trout health, not to be a good fisherman, or to be a responsible outdoorsman, it's, hey, if you want to take care of a fish, th- these are the best ways to do it. So th- your messaging and your tone's got to be right. And then the biggest thing, too, is be honest. Because we see through all those fake people. I mean, we see through all the people that are demoing uh, rods or gear that have no clue what they're doing, but they got it because they look good in front of a camera or they bought a couple thousand followers or, you know, to be kind of crash, you know, they're willing to pose and, uh, in compromising situations that a lot of us wouldn't want to be in, but they'll do it because they're getting the gear and the money. So that's, that's an issue. Uh, but I think we see through a lot of that stuff. Problem is that brands, still haven't caught on to the fact that, uh, you know, who was it that said like all publicity is good publicity. And that's just not true. Cause I still, to this day, get people making fun of me for, uh, fishing some of the Orvis gear. I do They're like, Oh, they make dog beds or oh, those my grandpa's fly rod. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, they make dog beds. That's why I buy fly rods from them because I know that they've got a sound business model. They're not going to run a business when the economy takes a, a turn for the worse. Um, you know, it, it's all about it's all about just being honest more than anything else. And it's funny because we we tout social media as a way to connect and 
it's a fantastic way to connect. I've met some of my best friends off of social media, but we touted it as this end all be all of connecting and authenticity, but it comes right down to it. People just won't be authentic about it. They're too scared of what other people think. And that's really uh, screwed us more than anything else is that everybody's so scared of what somebody else is going to think that everything's so crafted and produced. They're not willing to just be honest and be upfront. And I don't think that's asking too much of folks. And that's what I try to do. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty open on all my social media platforms with, um, with all sorts of, uh, with all sorts of things. I mean, shoot when I, uh, let's see, it would have been a year ago in July. So a year and a few months ago, my grandparents, uh, both died in a car crash. Uh, they had on collision. They died instantly. Thankfully no suffering. Uh, that was a real terrible time. And, being a religious person, I, I asked folks for prayers at that point. Cause I was, I was not taking it very well at all. And people that I only ever interact with, uh, to discuss fishing or hunting came right out of the woodwork and they were there. And I didn't use that as some kind of brand building, uh, thing. I would never do that I, people certainly have, and those people are, uh, you know, digging their own grave. But that's an example of how, if you really want to use social media for where, for what we claim it is, and you've got to be willing to be that honest, and it'll surprise you, and it'll touch you at how many people are willing to be honest, and how many people are willing to help you and support you when you're honest with them it really is pretty eye opening. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that. Cause I always tell people, I think it's, um, you know, social media is not inherently good or bad. It's like a shovel. I can dig a hole or I can hit you in the head with it. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, it, and it's, it's interesting. Cause I mean, I think, you know, you have phenomenal reach, right. And you have this way to find your people, but I think the the danger is it's so, um, it has this seductive quantitative nature to it that I think oh, yeah. that I think makes people, I, I don't know, like it's, I, I have these running conversations with people all the time about like, well, if you like it, but you don't listen, what does that really mean? Right. And um, it's an interesting thing. And I mean, and I, I've noticed recently too, kind of to your point, you see brands and people, they really aggressively trying to hack people's attention. Yep. And, and I kind of, to you, I just am like, well, just be yourself and try to show up every day and attract the people that want to be around you. Yep. So. And that's the only way to do it. I mean, and you know, you've got, you've got Sims, you got Patagonia that overproduce their content to the point that I just, hate their content uh that's not a comment on their gear but their content so polished and overproduced it's just frustrating because it's it's that ideal of fly fishing that's not real it's that uh you know every day is going to be an amazing day and they've got to say that they're trying to sell gear i get it um but it's just so polished and produced that it just feels out of reach for I mean somebody as fortunate as I am to be in my position where I am able to uh, fish with a lot of different uh, fly rods and gear and test it all out and granted 99% of that all goes back to the companies that sent it to me I rarely keep any of that stuff Um you know, even, even then, you know, it's uh, where I have that opportunity to, to play with all that gear and have fun with it. I still feel like sometimes I see these ads and I'm like, no, that's, that's out of reach even for me. 
So I can't afford half the gear that I review, <laughs> but I get to review it. So that's, you know, that's a saving grace right there. Uh, but you know, you, it's just, it's just about reaching people where they're at. It's not about trying to get people where you want them to be. I think that's the big, the biggest mistake that we all make with social media. Yeah. And it's interesting too, cause you talk about, you know, we think about kind of telling an authentic story and I don't mean telling a story like telling a story, but I mean, I think that's where the connection comes from. Um, yep. and, and kind of wondering how your more traditional writing experience helps you on the social media content strategy front? Um, I probably, uh, I don't know, probably just forces me to be more conversational, I think, because uh, that's what I was always taught, be conversational and be precise and concise, too. That's, that's kind of what gets drilled into your head in any writing program right now uh, is you've got to have a tone that invites people in, but then you can't lose them either. You've got to, you've got to say what you need to say and do it quickly. And it's not quite Hemingway bare bones writing, uh, but it's, you know, not far from that either. So it's funny you say that. So my oldest son is a college freshman. So during COVID, we were working on college essays together. And um, oh, fun! Yes, and I spent a lot of time with him. Uh, I, I read a lot of essays, and um, I spent a lot of time with him doing exactly what you're talking about. And one of his, well, one of his Christmas presents was a copy of Strunk and Whites and Old Man in the Sea. Yep. So uh, very wordy. I mean, very wordy. But I also think it's. Um, in my experience is we don't teach kids to write like we did when I was growing up. And so they don't get to practice it as much as they used to. No, they don't. And I, my, uh, my students grumble about it because I make them write every single day, but, uh, hopefully they'll thank me for it in a few years. So, yeah. Well, in, in 20 years, when someone's being interviewed on a podcast and they talk about who helped them with the writing, it'll be Spencer Durant, my middle school English teacher. <laughs> so I sure hope they have somebody more capable than me between now and then to help them out. <laughs> uh, you inspired them. But, you know, talking about storytelling, you also have a podcast called Unhooked. And uh, I was wondering, I was wondering if you could uh, tell our listeners a little bit about it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's on a slight hiatus at the moment uh, due to me moving and starting a new job. Uh, but I should be producing new episodes here shortly. And yeah, it's just a, it's a place for me to kind of mouth off about whatever I want, really. <laughs> so, you know, I... Uh, I I try not to tiptoe around the issues that none of us want to talk about. I try to address the conservation problems that nobody seems willing to discuss or address in great detail. Like there's there's so much widespread support for switching to quote unquote green energy uh, and carbon neutral uh, production, but people rarely go past the feel good headlines and look at what does that actually entail? And, you know, you look at a, a Tesla, for example, and yeah, you might get it and not have to pay for gas, but it was created using, uh, fossil fueled vehicles. They were shipped over here. The rare earth minerals were mined. Uh, it was assembled all using fossil fuel power and then it shipped to you and then you charge it via fossil fuel power. Uh, so until we're ready to have a conversation about really reshaping everything, we don't have any kind of moral leg to stand on, so to speak about, uh, about adopting that kind of stuff. So that, that's kind of where I get into with, with the show and how that relates to fly fishing and 
the conservation in general. And then there's, uh, I hunt a lot too. So I've, I've got hunting stories and I've got some fun stuff planned for this year, uh, with the fall hunts that I'm going to do some podcasts around. So that's, that's the show. Yeah, it's interesting. So is it really just kind of a place you created to talk about stuff that you couldn't write about and get published in magazines and then also just a place to play with a different medium as well? Yeah. Yeah, that's really what I did it for. So. Yeah, and so all that stuff really kind of rolls up to Spencer Duran Outdoors, which is kind of, I think, all things digital Spencer, right? Yes, I've never heard it put that way, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, you know, and so you, you, I think the only thing that's not there uh, when I was uh, doing research for the interview was the stuff that you really publish for other people. So this is really your podcast, you know, your rod making business, your guiding business, uh, your gear reviews. Yep. It's, it is the place for all my proprietary stuff. And I've got a giant backlog of things that need to be published. So there's going to be quite a bit of content coming soon. Uh, but again, getting a new job and moving has been really it sucked all my time away. Yeah. Um, and any ambition either. I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> the temptation to just lay down and take a nap overrides just about everything else right now. Uh, well, and also the important thing is, right, you can't let it keep you from getting out in the field or on the water. Well, exactly. And so, you know, I've, I'm, it's, I mean, I woke up this morning, it was 45 degrees this morning when I woke up and I walked outside and just that first breath of really crisp fall air just, you know, got me, got me thinking all about spawning trout and bugling elk and, oh, it's just, it, it made for a pretty good Monday. Yeah. And, and that's a, that's on a school Monday too. Yeah. On a Monday where I had to go to an hour-long meeting before school starts and they have us in a dark auditorium and then get mad when we start nodding off. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um. But, <laughs> but, but, but you know, too, I mean, you wear a lot of hats and you're a busy guy. You also own a, a guide business, the Utah Fly Fishing Company. And, you know, clearly being um, loving the outdoors where generations of your family have lived is really important to you, but that doesn't always mean that you have to become a guide. So when did you get the guide bug? Oh, three or four years ago, I think. Uh, I needed to make some extra money and I'd never guided before. And so some folks were willing to be my guinea pigs and I realized that I actually really enjoy it. And it's fun taking people out and getting them into fish. And it's fun seeing the progression. I took a lot of a uh, husband and wife couples this year uh, with the Utah Fly Fishing Company. We took them fishing and there was one couple. Neither of them had ever fished in their life. And so we spent the first four or five hours of the day on this little small stretch of stream where they just worked at it and worked at it until they got the cast down. And then as soon as they got a decent cast, the fish would come up and rise. It's that kind of spot. And so then they worked on getting the hook set and then stripping line in and then a good drag free drift. And by the end of the day, they were fishing on their own catch and cutthroat in a high meadow stream on really calm pools. And that's not easy dry fly fishing to do. So that's been really fun to watch. Yeah, very cool. And so just to help people understand, you're got, you guide kind of around the Green River, kind of right near around the Flaming Gorge, right? Yeah, I, I guide the Flaming Gorge area, everything except the Green River. And hopefully next year we can offer trips on the Green. That's in the works at the moment, but we'll see how that pans out. And then uh, all the little streams and lakes around it uh, that's on the north slope of the Uinta Mountains. Uh, basically from Highway 150 all the way east to uh, Highway 191. So that whole north slope of the Uintas, there's some, there's some fantastic fishing. It's the only place that 
I know of where you can catch a tiger trout uh, over 24 inches long at 11,000 feet above sea level. Um, so that's a pretty cool claim to fame. And uh, there's all sorts of little backcountry lakes you can hike into. There's We've got golden trout. We've got trophy-sized golden trout. I mean, they're they're in the – we've got multiple fish in that 18 to 21, 22-inch range. Uh, grayling that would just knock your socks off. They're bigger than anything I've caught outside of Alaska. Um, you know, we've just got a lot of fun stuff and stuff that gets overlooked because the green's right there and everybody wants to go fish the green. So uh, more power to them because it keeps – a lot of folks off my small streams. Yeah. So. That's uh, that's kind of how I am here um, in North Carolina with everyone fishing delayed harvest in the fall. It gives me free reign on all the wild trout streams that I like to fish on. Oh, I bet. Yeah. So it's interesting. So did you build the guide service just from the ground up or were, did you kind of, you know, do overflow from a shop and then they kind of became your clients or how did you build it out? No, we built it up from the ground up. I got a business partner, uh, Bridger Lyons. He and I have known each other since the third grade. Um, we've been buddies since then, and uh, he fishes, I fish. And so we uh, we sat down one day, and I said, dude, we need, to start a, we need to start a guide outfit. And he's like, why are you asking me? I said, because you have money, and I don't. So... <laughs> He, uh, he provided the, the capital for our first year and, uh, it ended up being pretty successful. So, uh, we, we had a lot of fun. I think our clients had fun. We had folks all the way from Georgia and, uh, Texas coming out to fish with us. That was a lot of fun. And we just got people into fish and, and, uh, hopefully we're looking to expand it then, but we really just started from the ground up and uh, did a little bit of advertising on social media and I just kind of put the word out to my network folks that I'm guiding and I got plenty of trip referrals and enough that it worked out. And then uh, Mike James, who runs the Quiet Fly Fisher in Loa, Utah, uh, I've guided for him for a couple of years now and he uh, has been more than helpful. He sent a lot of extra extra traffic my way as well yeah very neat and what was it like you know it's one thing to fish for yourself and be successful but what was that transition to fishing f- to help other people be successful well the day sucks until you get that first fish <laughs> so once you get that first fish then then things are a lot better uh, and that's really the thing that you worry about because i think i had I'm trying to think. We didn't get skunk this year, but we came we came frighteningly close a couple of times. I was getting real nervous um, to where there was just the fish weren't doing anything. I couldn't get them to do anything. The clients couldn't get them to do anything. And that, that's really the thing that you, you try and remind them that you're, you're not there just to catch fish. You're there for the whole experience, but you know, they're paying you money to catch fish. So you've really got to step up. So I, I can go out and if I don't catch fish, I'm fine. I mean, I'll be, I was out the other night and I missed a pretty nice fish. It came up and smacked my hopper. and I set the hook too fast and broke the line. So I'm an idiot. Uh, and so that was, you know, I was kind of grumbling at myself for that, but you know, it's, uh, I go out and fish and not catch something to be okay usually, but that's not the case with clients. You've got to really, you've got to do everything you can. You got to leave it all out there. So it gets, it's interesting how creative you end up getting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah it's interesting too. Cause I always am amazed at how reluctant clients are to tell their guides what they want to get out of the day. Yeah. And that's something I ask everybody first off. I said, what do you want? Do you want to catch a bunch of fish? Do you want to just try and catch a few big ones? Or do you just want an experience? And if they want an experience, then they're in for an experience. Cause that probably means I'm going to make them hike three or four miles <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. And we're going to fish this little lake that I've been curious about. 
and maybe I haven't fished since last year. I don't know if the winter killed or not, but we're going to go find out. And, you know, to my clients' credit, a lot of them are like, yeah, let's do it. That's fine. Let's do it. So. Yeah, and I, it's very neat. And I always ask all of um, the folks that come on the podcast that are guides to share what they think the biggest misconception people have about the life of a fishing guide. Uh, I don't know. That, that it's lucrative in any way at all. Because <laughs> uh, it's not. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of folks. Charlie Card, he's a good buddy of mine. He's a guide on the Green River. and uh, he, he guides close to 300 days a year and makes enough to support his family. And he is one of the very few I know who do it. Uh, Landon Meyer uh, out in Colorado, uh, he guides his freaking tail off, but he also writes and he runs a shop. And that's what a lot of guides, if you're really going to make a go of it, you've got to have something else there because guiding itself it doesn't doesn't pay the bills like it used to because you've got to pay for insurance you've got to pay uh you know depending on where you're at you're paying a shuttle every day you're buying lunches you're buying drinks you're replacing rods you're tying flies you're buying leaders you're buying you know it, it all adds up and when you're fishing every day for three people instead of one you know, it gets a little expensive after a while. Yeah, it's interesting because I would always try to explain that to people. And, you know, you put on top of that math, if the guide is guiding for a shop, the shop's taking a big chunk of what's left over after the shuttle, the lunches, and all the other stuff. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's interesting as we sort of wind down this evening, is there anything? I know you've had a ton going on. And we've talked a little bit about what people can expect to see, you know, with the podcast and, you know, on your, your digital hub, as we called it tonight. Um, <laughs> but is there, is there anything else you want to tell folks to expect from uh, Spencer Duran in the near future? Buy my fly rods. That's what I want to. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but seriously, if you, if you want a bamboo rod, at least look at what I'm doing. I love building rods. I don't, I don't get to do it enough for paying clients. I build a lot for myself right now. Uh, so and I keep having to explain to my, I keep telling my wife, Oh, it's just practice. Uh, but I, I practiced a lot. So I need, <laughs> I need some paying clients. Uh, but no, uh, this is for what to expect. I mean, there's more of the same, as far as gear reviews go, I, I got my start in this business doing gear reviews. That's how I got started writing about fly fishing was gear reviews. Um, that's where my first published uh, fishing piece was. It was for KSL.com. I just remembered that. See? That's who it was for. Came full circle. And you can sleep uh, You can sleep soundly tonight now. Yes, yes, I can. Uh, no, that was... Uh, yeah, so more of the same as far as my gear reviews go, but then I really am trying to branch out into publishing more stories and more essay-style writing, stuff that's a little bit more thought-provoking and more in-depth. Um, I did a story earlier this year called After Dark uh, about a uh, UFO experience. And you can read it for yourself and see if you think I'm, you know, just telling a tale or if there's any truth to it. Um, but stuff like that that I want to play around with and have a lot more fun with. So been getting burned out on the gear review stuff when that's all you do for years. Yeah. You want to switch it up. Yeah. And so what's the best way for folks to follow your writing and kind of keep up with the adventures of Spencer Durant? They follow on Twitter or Instagram at Spencer underscore Durant, uh, Spencer Durant Outdoors on Facebook, and then 
Uh, oh, then the website, SpencerDurant.com. Uh, you can uh, sign up for a newsletter there. And when I get new content out, you'll get notified. So, yeah, And I'll drop all that stuff in the show notes, too. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. And Spencer, I appreciate you uh, taking a a little bit of time out of your evening, particularly I, my mom's a retired school teacher, so I get it. Um, you know, you want to get things wrapped up and get ready for the next day. So I super appreciate you taking the time. Oh, no worries. I'm uh, glad to not think about school for a couple of hours. Well, there you go. <laughs> yep. Well, listen, Spencer, thanks again. Hey, you bet, Marvin. Thank you. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcast of your choice. And don't forget to head on over to www.nor-vice.com and check out all of their great products. Tight lines, everybody.